I've made a lot of dumb decisions in my life. That's a way to start, right? More than I can count, honestly, more than I have time to share, although one of the weird things about doing what I do is you get to share some dumb things that you do. But honestly, there's a lot more than I'd really care to share. But I remember one that I was growing up. I don't remember exactly how old I was, 10, 11, 12, 13. I don't really remember. But I had just learned some cuss words. I'd probably known them for a while, honestly, but I was realizing, hey, you can use these in various ways, with various meanings. So these words are kind of bouncing around in my head, and one day I decided to write down one of these words. I don't know why either. I wanted to, like, get it out. So instead of, like, yelling it into my pillow, that would have been way better. Writing it down on a scrap piece of paper and throwing it away, also way better. I decided, you know what? I'm going to go big. I decided to carve it with a nickel into a wall in our house. That's an appropriate response. So I grabbed a nickel, and I walked to a wall, and I kind of started in, you know? What word do you think it was? Not that one. That one. Yep, the big boy. That's a dumb thing to do. So I thought to myself, I'm not just going to carve it on any wall. You know, I'm going to carve it on a hallway that goes into my older brother's room. His name's Aaron. He had a little wall, kind of about this big, perfect canvas size, right? And I decided, okay, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. So I finished kind of the four-letter word, dug that nickel deep into the wall. I step back. I'm kind of admiring my work, and then I start to panic a little bit because I'm like, oh, I didn't think this through. Like, I'm going to get in trouble. Aaron is actually going to see this, like, by the end of the day. What was I thinking? And if you know me, when I was growing up, I did a lot of dumb things. And I also did a lot of dumb things to cover up the dumb things that I did. So I thought, I know how I'm going to get out of this. Perfect. So right under this huge carving of a four-letter word, you know, I have this huge cuss word. Then I carved another word into the wall. So cuss word, and right under it, I go, dash Aaron. Brother's name, I signed it like Picasso would have signed one of his masterpieces. I mean, my parents saw right through it. Like, they're like, who in their right mind would sign their name under this? You know, it's not like the Mona Lisa or anything. Like, this is ridiculous. Nobody does that. It was obviously me. What a dumb decision. Have you ever made, like, a dumb, boneheaded decision? We all have, right? We all have examples of those in our life. But here's the question. What if you were defined by the worst thing you've ever done, by something you did that was really not okay to do? What if I was defined even by that silly bad decision, like I was introduced to you like, hey, this is Adam, one time he carved a cuss word into a wall and was dumb enough to sign his brother's name under it? I wouldn't want to be known by that, I wouldn't want to be defined by that, but we do this, don't we? We kind of define ourselves, we define other people by a bad thing or a bad day or bad decisions by who they were on their worst day. Don't believe me? Here are some examples. Have you heard of Aaron Burr? You know who Aaron Burr is? Not just because of the hit Broadway musical Hamilton. I learned about Aaron Burr when I was growing up in school. Here's the only thing I knew about him, though, that he was in a duel and that he killed Alexander Hamilton. That's all I knew about him. I didn't know that he was a vice president. I didn't know that he was in the Revolutionary War. He did all this other stuff. But I knew him because of one thing that he did. Okay, sports fans, here's another example. Anybody know who Steve Bartman is? Any Cubs fans out there? 
He's one of the Chicago Cub fans, and he attempted to catch this foul ball. It got in the way. I don't know. Depends on whose side you're on on this. It got in the way of a Cubs player. It was a playoff game in 2003. He got in the way. He missed the foul ball the Cubs player did, and people blamed Steve Bartman so much so that they threw trash at him. He had to get escorted out of Wrigley Field that day. The police protected him at his house the week following that. The only reason I know who Steve Bartman is is because of one thing. That's not even that big of a deal. But it's the only reason I know who he is. Have you heard of Monica Lewinsky? You have. She was involved in an incredibly public sex scandal with President Bill Clinton. She's actually now an activist against cyberbullying, but most of us don't know that. We know who she is because of negative situations. That's it. See, we define people all the time. You don't want to hang around Joe. He's a liar. You don't want to date Sue. She's a thief. You don't want to go to that school. You don't want to interact with those people. We define people, places, schools, races, countries, all sorts of different things. We define ourselves too. How do you define yourself? Like what words would you use? Who are you? Have you ever met somebody who kind of introduced themselves like with their definition too? You're like, hey, I'm Bob. I'm from Chicago. You're like, okay, Bob from Chicago, I guess. Like that's, it's good to know. But we define ourselves by our jobs, by our relationships, by our achievements, you know, like Emmy award winning, you know, before, like, before they are introduced, you know, actors have all of these kind of titles beforehand. And sometimes we define ourselves by the worst day that we've had or the worst decision that we've made. You know, things like, I'm a failure. Things like, I'm a worrier. Things like, I'm a perfectionist. What would you do if you went to a dinner party? Can you imagine you you walk into this dinner party and every single person there, maybe you know them, maybe you don't, but every single person there knew the worst thing that you've done. I don't want to go to that party. Now, we're in the second week of a series called Dinner with Jesus, and we're talking about what we can learn from these lessons that Jesus taught as he had dinner with all sorts of different people in the Bible. And this week, Jesus is actually having dinner with some Pharisees. Pharisees are religious teachers, religious leaders of the day. And Jesus is actually at one of their houses. He's hanging out with them, and he's eating there with them. And there's this unexpected guest that changes the entire meal. Now, quick reminder, the book of Luke, that's the one we're kind of going through. It's one of the Gospels. It's in the New Testament, second half of the Bible. Gospel literally means good news, and Luke is telling about the good news of Jesus. And Luke is this doctor, smart guy, and he pulled together all this eyewitness testimony about the life of Jesus. And today we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, and it's describing this meal that Jesus has with these religious teachers. So this is Luke 7, starting in verse 36. Check this out. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with them. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. So did you catch it? I mean, we highlighted it. I hope you caught it. Can you imagine going to a dinner party that you're not invited to, by the way, and everyone knows the worst thing about you? A certain immoral woman. Now, there's some argument about what made her 
immoral. We don't know exactly, but a lot of times this is translated in other versions of the Bible as well-known sinner. Can you imagine? Hey, I'm Adam. I'm a well-known sinner around here. Like, we don't introduce ourselves like that. Sometimes it's also translated as a prostitute. So the exact type of immorality doesn't really matter, I don't think. What matters is she's a woman who turns out to be immoral, and every single person in that room would have known her. She's a certain immoral woman. She knows her reputation precedes her. Imagine walking in and everybody's starting to whisper. Everybody knowing the worst stuff about you. Hey, Adam Cussword Carver. Hey, Pete, cheater on your taxes. Hey, Betty, gossiper extraordinaire. Hey, Jimmy, addict and relapser. The worst stuff. Everybody knows it. A certain immoral woman. So what happened? This is verse 38. Then she knelt behind him, him being Jesus, at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Now, culturally... It was actually pretty common for meals like this to have spectators. That's not how it is for us. Like, we don't have people, like, looking in our windows as we're eating. That'd be super weird. We'd call the police and all that type of stuff. But culturally, it was a super normal thing at big banquets like this for people to come and listen to these people talk and to eat the leftovers. So the issue wasn't actually that she was around at all. It's that she left the sidelines and that she kind of got into the game. She joined the playing field. So we're going to break this verse down just a little bit there because there's a lot in here. So this immoral woman went up to Jesus and she's crying, which kind of would have been a faux pas. So much so that her tears are falling on Jesus' feet. That's how close she is to him. And she wipes them off with her hair, which is a big deal. Letting down your hair in public in this culture was absolutely unacceptable. People would have been shocked that she was doing this. Then she kisses his feet, which wouldn't have been allowed at all. Then she put perfume on them, which likely would have cost about a year's salary per pound. It was an extravagant thing. So you get in the picture, this immoral woman that everyone knows is a big old sinner, comes in, approaches Jesus, strike one, wipes off her tears with her hair that was down, strike two, kisses and interacts with his feet in a way, strike three, and puts expensive perfume on it, strike four. I mean, she's out, then some. What would you do if something like this happened at your dinner party? I mean, you're minding your own business. Somebody you didn't invite comes in and starts doing something shocking. I don't know, like starts throwing like peas at the wall or something like that. And you're like, what's the matter with you? It's way out of line. What would you do? Well, this is how the host of the party reacted. And I think sometimes that we react exactly like this. Check this out. When the Pharisee who'd invited him saw this, he said to himself under his breath, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. I love this because it's passive aggressive and you and I do this too, don't we? He didn't say, how dare you? He was like under his breath, if Jesus knew what he was up to, like he wouldn't be okay with this. This is what people do around the Thanksgiving dinner table when Aunt Gladys puts her, like, teeth on the, on the table. And everybody knows it, and everybody doesn't like it, but nobody says anything to her. So passive-aggressive. And Jesus straight up answers the Pharisees' thoughts. That's awesome. 
See, the Pharisees like, is Jesus even from God? He's talking about him being a prophet. I doubt it. I doubt he's even who he says he is. And Jesus read his mind. I mean, do you know who can read minds? A prophet. He's proving it just right there. So Jesus answered his thoughts. This is verse 40. Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, that's the name of the Pharisee. He said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher. Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. Now, we don't deal with silver pieces very much anymore. So let me add a little bit of clarity to it. 500 pieces of silver is about the equivalent to a year and a half worth of debt. That's a lot of debt in this time. 50 pieces of silver is two-ish months worth of salary and debt. So Jesus is saying one person is in a little bit of trouble. One person is in a whole lot of debt. This is verse 42. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon answered. There's a right answer to this. And this is what he says. Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. So Jesus is comparing debt forgiveness to forgiveness of sins. That's what he's doing. So imagine the appreciation and love from the person who is in a lot of debt, like beyond what they would be able to take care of, beyond what they would be able to figure out on their own. If you've got student debt, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're paying attention to what's going on right now, aren't you? See, the person in debt doesn't have a bargaining position. There's nothing that they can do. Only grace allows the debt to be removed. So it's so clear that even Simon understood. He's like, yeah, the person with more debt would be more appreciative. But Jesus isn't done. This is verse 44. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home... You didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. See, the stuff that Jesus is saying is about the woman. And remember, all this stuff is shocking. This is all like inappropriate stuff to them. They're going, that you wouldn't do that. And he mentions all of them. And his point is Simon didn't respond in the same way as this woman did. As he tells this story, the woman is in the story and Simon is in the story. The woman is the person with 500 pieces of silver in debt. Simon's the person with 50 pieces of silver in debt. And Simon didn't do the kind gestures that he could have done, that maybe he should have done. He didn't have to wash Jesus' feet necessarily or greet him with a kiss, but it would have been kind to do so. It would have been hospitable to do so. It would have shown respect and care and love. And Simon didn't do any of it. And this woman who they didn't invite, they thought was being inappropriate, she went above and beyond And Jesus even tells us why she did so. I love this. I love when it gets like this in your face and this simple. This is verse 47. I tell you, her sins, remember that debt forgiveness, her sins, and they are many. He's not saying she doesn't have it. She is a certain immoral woman. Her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. 
So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. A certain immoral woman, she's a sinner. Everybody knows it. And Jesus is pointing out, hey, her response is appropriate. If she's forgiven of the worst thing that she's ever done, she's over the moon about it. And the Pharisees, Simon, didn't really think that they did as much wrong. Who are you in this story? So remember two debtors? And the Pharisees would have identified actually with the smaller debt. But this immoral woman, she's being defined by the worst stuff on the worst day. And Jesus says, not so fast, not so fast. You're forgiven. So I kind of think that there are two takeaways to the story as I'm reading through it. Here's the first one. See, we are not defined by what we do on our worst day. You see the hope in that? A certain immoral woman comes to a party where she's not invited. Everybody knows what she's done. She's defined by her sin when she walks in. She's defined by her mistakes when she walks in, where she falls short of God's standard when she walks in. And Jesus is saying loudly and clearly, look, you are not defined by what you do on your worst day. Think of the worst thing. See, Jesus knows it. Remember, he reads minds. And he's saying, your sins are forgiven if you follow me. Your sins are forgiven. We're not defined by what we do on our worst day. And I'm going to be real with you for a second, so don't rush by this. I forget that sometimes, do you? I start to believe that I am defined by what I do on my worst day. Can you relate to that? And sometimes I kind of relate to that certain immoral woman because I feel like my failure or my insecurity or my sin is just so obvious and it's going to weigh me down, and I can't get out from under it. And honestly, sometimes on my worst day, really getting real here, on my worst day is when I act like Simon, the Pharisee. And I forget that maybe I don't have it all figured out. And I go and I tell other people what they need to do before really paying attention to what Jesus is doing for me. And I need to stop defining other people by their worst days too. See, we're not defined by what we do on our worst day. No matter what it is, no matter what you've done, no matter who has hurt you, no matter who you've hurt, no matter the pain, no matter the struggle, no matter the harm, no matter the sin, no matter the worst thing that you've ever done, we are not defined by it. Why? Because we are defined by what Jesus did on his best day. Our worst day is nothing compared to Jesus on his best day. It's no contest. It's not even fair how uneven that scale is. Think about the worst day for you. The worst of the worst of the worst. If you put your faith in Jesus, if you believe in him, if you follow him, if you dedicate your life to him, it's completely and utterly forgiven. See, we're not defined by what we do on our worst day. No matter what it is, we're defined by what Jesus did on his best day. Because this is how this story ends. Check this out. This is verse 49. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? That's a fair question. Do you have an answer to that question? 
What's your answer? Who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? He's Jesus. He's the son of God. He came to earth and lived a perfect life. He's not a certain immoral person. He is the perfect person. He's the best of the best. And instead of being treated like it, he decided to go die on a cross because of his love for us, for me and you, for what we do on bad days. For Jesus, it's not a bad day though. It's the best day. He died on the cross for our worst days, and three days later, he rose again. We're not defined by what we do on our worst day because Jesus died on the cross on his best day. We even call it Good Friday. If you place your trust in Jesus, it wipes all the worsts in our life away. That doesn't mean you don't have consequences to what you do. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to think through what you do. That's not what he's saying. If you place your trust in Jesus, it wipes all the worst in your life away because of what Jesus has done. It gives us hope for eternity. We get to be with Jesus in heaven. Jesus came to, for people like me and like you who have really bad days. He came for the certain immoral woman. He came for Simon. And he came for the sinner like you and like me. So who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? He's Jesus. He's my Savior. Now there are people here today. Maybe you feel like your worst day defines you. I get it. That you feel like, I'm a, I'm a certain immoral man. I'm a certain immoral woman. I make mistakes. I fall short. I don't have this all figured out. But I'm here to tell you, no matter how you fill in that blank, the worst thing that you've ever done, it doesn't define you because Jesus defines you. And we can answer that question. Who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? If you've never answered that question before, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus, you have an opportunity to do that today. I'd like to ask everybody here, online, wherever you're at, bow your head with me. If you want to follow Jesus, you've never accepted him, you've never asked him to lead your life, I'm going to say a prayer. And you can repeat it after me. You don't have to say it out loud or anything like that. Just say it to yourself. Repeat this prayer after me. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for the way you died on the cross, for where I fall short of God's standard. Thank you for loving me on my worst day. I surrender my life to you. I place my faith in you. I decide today to follow you and invite you to lead my life. I believe that you are my Savior, and I accept you. Amen. If you've made that decision today to follow Jesus, we want to know about it. I want to know about it. It's a huge deal. We want to celebrate with you. We want to talk with you. We want to engage with you about what's next. So I'll actually be down here after the service, down front. You can also get connected with us in a couple of different ways. Becca will talk about that at the end of our service. But we'd like to talk with you. We'd like to celebrate with you. We'd like to pray with you. Now, there's actually one more verse in this story. Kind of wonder, hey, what happens to this certain immoral woman? What happens? So she comes and all these things. It's shocking. All this behavior that really she shouldn't maybe have been doing culturally and 
What happens? This is verse 50. Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, know that because of what Jesus did on the cross, your faith saves you. You're not defined by your worst day because we're defined by what Jesus did on his best day. But maybe you've believed in Jesus for a really, really long time. And maybe in this story, you might relate a little bit more on the Simon, the Pharisee side than you do on the certain immoral woman side. What does this story have to do with you? See, I think the story is a reminder that we still have bad days. And even though we still have bad days and we still mess up, you're not defined by it. You're defined by Jesus. And sometimes we need to remember that. We need to stop picking up those other definitions. And just like Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you, you and I can actually go in peace. So what's that worst thing that's rattling around in your head? Because we can go in peace today. You can go in peace today because you're not defined by your addiction. It's a big deal. And you need help. And you need hope. But you can go in peace because you're not defined by it. Because Jesus loves you. He defines you. You can go in peace today because you're not defined by your financial situation. Good, bad, if it's weighing you down, you don't know how you're going to navigate all of this stuff. And you're going, how in the world can I have peace in the midst of all of that? We can have it because of what Jesus does for us. Go in peace today because you're not defined by your depression or your anxiety or your self-worth or any of the things that are rattling around in your brain or in your heart. You're not defined by those things. You can go in peace today because you're not defined by your circumstances. We need to say that again. You're not defined by your circumstances. We can have peace because Jesus is in the circumstances. He was yesterday, he's working right now, and he's working tomorrow. He's got it covered. Go in peace today because you're not defined by what others think of you, no matter what they think of you. Go in peace today because you're not defined by what you think of yourself. You're defined by what Jesus did on the cross. Go in peace today because you're not defined by the worst thing you did on your worst day. You can go in peace today because you're defined by what Jesus did on his best day. So listen, just like this story, just like the certain immoral woman Your faith has saved you because of what Jesus did on the cross. Go in peace. I'd like to pray for us. Heavenly Father, it's hard to go in peace. There's much in our world that pulls, tugs, pushes, prompts. Sometimes it can be difficult to navigate. I am thankful today for this reminder that your love, that Jesus and what you did on the cross, Jesus, defines us. That we can be called your children, a child of God because of what you have done, not because of what we have done. That we can go in peace throughout our lives no matter what other people think, no matter what we think, no matter what else is going on. That's so countercultural right now. Maybe even shocking to people because we can have peace because of who you are. And I thank you for this opportunity to surrender our lives to you. Whether we've done that before, whether this is the first time some of us have said, you know what, I am going to surrender to you. I am going to follow you. 
I'm so thankful that what I do on my worst day or my second worst day or my third worst day is nothing compared to what you've done on the best day. And that's not just platitude. It's truth. I thank you for the way you love us. I thank you for the way you provide for us. I thank you for the peace that you give us. Thank you for allowing us to be your children. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray today. Amen.